behind these eight weeks through this journey through the book of Acts is to look at God's word completely fresh and to take off all of our preconceived notions, our traditions, our preferences, our ideas of how we've seen church done, how we've heard church done, how we ourselves have experienced church done. And I'm talking about the good, the bad, and the ugly. All because I don't want anything to get in the way of God's word. I want God's word to be unhindered as we learn and say, God, what are we supposed to look like as your church? How are we supposed to act, walk, talk, think, be? So that, that's the idea. And, and again, we, we kind of mentioned, I mentioned last week, if we're trying to define what kind of genre is the book, that, that's important for us to know when we're studying a book of the Bible, because genre helps us interpret it more clearly. And there are a lot of ideas for the book of Acts, but I just want to keep reminding you, here's Pastor Justin's humble, one-on-one, biblical interpretation of the genre of the book of Acts. It's simply this, a story of men and women who followed God's way rather than their way. Okay, like just have that in your mind as we continually come back, read Acts, learn it as you study it throughout the week. Um, Again, you will have a handout. I left mine down there on the seats in front of you. Grab one of those. Grab a pen in the seat backs in front of you, and I will have fill-ins for you that you can track along. And then, of course, on the bottom, there is a uh, devotional Bible reading plan for you to follow throughout the week. Again, if you're just wondering, hey, where do I start in Scripture? This is a great way for you to track along with the story and with extra biblical evidence of the book of Acts and what we talk about. So we just want to put that resource in your hand. Take it home. Use it today. All right. The title of my sermon today is this. Fixing what we've broken. This might not hold much image for you, but I'm, I'm going to give you a little story. It doesn't look bad. Like, imagine if you received a package like this to your front step, uh, and you were waiting, man, you were waiting so long. You got to wait 48 hours for that package, man. Man, that's too long. <laughs> and your package arrived like this. Well, um, before the days of Amazon, when I was just a young buck, I was a peewee, um, there was, there was something called a Game Boy Advance ST, a video game, that was set to be released on a particular day. And my brother, who was seven years my senior, uh, had the money and had the ability to pre-order that. And I knew when it was going to arrive, and I was excited for that thing. And I was home that day, and I don't remember why, but my brother and pretty much everyone is out. I think my my, my, my babshi, my Polish grandma, was watching me, but she was out, like, taking a nap or something. I'm waiting for, I don't know what it was, that FedEx, UPS, USPS, um, to deliver that package. Um, and sure enough, the package came. And it didn't look like this. It was pristine. It was clean. It was un, uh, un, unbroken in any sense of how it should have been delivered. And I get the box, and I bring it inside. And I plop it right down uh, on the counter, and I'm looking at this thing, and I'm having a serious problem. Because I'm staring at this box, and I know it's my brother's. And I know he paid for it with his own money, and I know he was waiting for it, and he wasn't home to open it. But I saw it, and I thought, yeah, I'm going to open this thing. 
and I went and I got scissors. <coughs> I, wait, no, I didn't get scissors. What am I talking about? I just ripped the thing open. I went to town with it. I mangled the box. I saw that video game. I was like, oh, man, I took it out. I started playing with it. Then my parents get home. And they're like, what is that? I'm like, nothing. <laughs> and I'm playing it. And they're like, that's your brother's his. And I was like, yeah. And I don't know what. I'd probably try to come up with some fabricated justifying lie about why it was the right thing to do at the time. And there's no justifying it. And they were livid. They were upset. And I'm crying. And they're like, do you realize what you did to your brother? He, he, when he gets home, he's going to be so beside himself. And so what I did was I took the box. I took the game. I put it all back together. And this is pretty much what it looked like. Like, seriously, I don't know how old I was, but it was bad. And you want to know what's really sad? Side note, this is still what my Christmas wrapping looks like. You can ask my wife. I'm not, I'm not exaggerating. I try, man, and it's bad. Um, I get so violent with it, and I make tears, and so I just put tape everywhere. I'm like, who cares? She's going to rip it open on Christmas anyway. Anyway, so I give this. My brother comes home, and I come crying to him, and I'm like, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, I, I did it. There you go. There's your game. And he, I, I remember him looking at it like, are you serious? Are you serious? Like, it just lessened the joy that he himself was waiting to open this package. Um, you ever had any siblings like that? Yeah, I, I was that sibling. Um, we've received a gift as believers in Jesus. We've received the gift as human beings created in the image of God, we've been given the gift of life, man, to start with. The problem is, you know it, sin leads us to destroy, let me tell you something, something that wasn't even ours to begin with. We are God's, but he's given us the freedom to do with what he's given us however we choose. And there's a right way and there's a wrong way, and the problem is, we pretty much always choose the wrong way. And life without Jesus is like this box where we just try to piece it back together. And, and it's a mangled mess of trash that is not what God created. And then we, we try to pretty it up and say, yeah, I did a good job. I'm getting through life okay. But I just want to tell you today, God can completely renew you and restore you in spite of your mistakes. So. Acts chapter 2, fixing what we've broken. Let me read for you the first 11 verses. Last week, we looked at chapter 1, and we talked about taking care of old business. See, Jesus ascended into heaven, and before he leaves, he gives a final command to his followers. He says, disciples, go to Jerusalem and wait for the promised Holy Spirit, the power. For what? For the express purpose of being witnesses. Don't ever forget that. We're going to come back to that. The purpose of the gift was for witness, was to proclaim, was to share. Nothing else. And in spite of some difficulties and some, you know, hesitation, they actually listen. And they go back and they take care of some old business with Judas and his replacement as we looked at last week. But now this week... Let's look at the result of their obedience and waiting. So here it is. Verse 1. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. 
Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now, there were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews, from every nation under heaven. When they heard the sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken, utterly amazed. They asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Then, how is it that each of us hears them in our own native language? We got Parthians, we got Medes, we got Elamites, we got residents of Mesopotamia, we got Judea, we got Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. All right. So there's a lot to talk about right here that we just read in the first 11 verses. Let me talk about the very first word that stands out in the first verse, Pentecost. The idea of Pentecost, the word literally itself means 50. Pentecost, 50. Now, let me tell you the Jewish tradition behind Pentecost, but but before Pentecost, let me tell you about a festival that took place just prior to Pentecost. It was the Passover festival, a festival that was to be practiced annually by the Jews in memory of a very life altering event for the Jewish nation. And for those of you that know, it was the exodus from Egypt, particularly when God enacted the final plague on the Egyptians. Let me remind you, for those of you that don't know or don't remember that story. God, he's trying to deliver the Israelites through his sent servant Moses. Pharaoh won't listen, so plague after plague after plague after plague comes until finally God saves the worst for last. And he instructs the Israelites in particular, hey, I'm going to send a plague that's going to wipe out the firstborn throughout the entire nation without discrimination. The answer to you being saved is take the blood of an unblemished young lamb And after you sacrifice it, wipe the blood of that lamb over the doorposts to your home. And when I come through, when my angel of death comes through, he's going to pass over you and you will be spared. You will be exonerated. You will be set free from that wrath. That night comes, the Israelites are safe in their homes, and then morning comes and they hear loud wailing and mourning. Because all of the Egyptians who did not themselves follow through with that plan, their firstborn were taken away from them. And in that moment, Pharaoh finally says, go. You're set free. And they plunder him on the way. And and there's a lot more to the story. But that is what God instituted just a little while later as the Israelites are out of Egypt and they're traveling to Mount Sinai. God says, I don't want you to forget how I delivered you because it's going to have profound implications in the future. Fast forward to the New Testament. In the gospel accounts, towards the end, as Jesus is coming up to his final few days on earth, he's in Jerusalem. Why? The Passover festival, the Passover feast, where 
Jews from all around the continent and the country are coming together to celebrate in Jerusalem, the place where they offer sacrifices to God to remember how we were set free, our salvation from Egypt. And it's during the Passover that the lamb who was slain before the foundations of the earth were even laid is hung on a cross and his blood is shed for us for all time. So God, he, man, he, he really, he's got good timing. Can I just say that? He's like, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take advantage of this cultural melding pot in this day of celebration where I know there are a ton of people around and I'm going to show them just as they were delivered in the past, I'm going to do it again, but I'm going to do it in the ultimate way through Jesus, the perfect lamb. So it's during the Passover that, the events of Jesus happen. And then after three days, we know he is, after being buried, he rises from the dead. Now, I forgot to show that picture. Guys, did you throw that picture of the angel up there already? You can throw that picture just so they know. This was just a picture that I wanted to show you of the events of Exodus of the Passover. You have the Israelite family waiting in their homes. They've already spread the blood over their doorposts. Now it's supposed to be the angel of death passing over. I forgot to show you that picture, but now, again, let, let's fast forward to, again, the New Testament. Jesus is buried. He rises from the dead. Um, and then we have 50 days from the commemoration of the celebration of the Passover. We have what is also prescribed by God to be celebrated annually. One of the other three national annual festivals, the, the Feast of First Fruits, Pentecost. Now, again, it means 50 because literally it's supposed to be seven on the seventh day of the seven weeks from the start of Passover. So seven times seven plus that one day where it started 50 days later, Pentecost. Now, this is what isn't known for sure, but is traditionally held to be the case that in Exodus, after the Israelites were delivered from bondage and slavery, it was potentially 50 days later that they reached Mount Sinai where they were all instructed to stop and wait while Moses ascended and received from God the Mosaic Law. What's the Mosaic Law? A lot of answers, but let me tell you what the Mosaic Law actually is. The rule of life for the Israelites as they prepared to go to a pagan land. Think about it. They, were, they weren't where they were supposed to be. Mount Sinai was just, was just a rest stop. They were on their way to the promised land. And although it was going to be a promised land, it was inhabited with a ton of pagan, godless, sinful cultures that God says, before you go there, I've got to give you a standard for life for you to follow. That's for your benefit, not mine. It's going to keep you holy and you safe. That's what Mount Sinai and the giving of the law represents. The, the means for life and abundant life. Now, stick with me. I'm going all over the place. Back to Pentecost. New Testament. 50 days have transpired. Jesus told his disciples to wait. Lord, are you now at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Chapter 1. It's not for you to know the time or the season. You just go and you wait. Could he have done it right then, right there? Now, he could have, but there's a reason, as we're going to see, just like we read, that God didn't do it just then. He waited. 
Again, God, God uses seasons, and he loves to use them to his advantage. If he had waited to give the power of the Spirit prior to Pentecost, it would not have begun to have the impact on the world that he intended it to have because this is what I'm going to keep coming back to. The gift of God, the gift of the Holy Spirit, the power of the Holy Spirit is not meant to just simply bring edification to those of us that believe. It's meant for a purpose. It will lead to edification as we use it for its purpose. Remember chapter 1, you will be my witnesses. On my Wednesday night, Sunday morning, Sunday night, summer camp gatherings where we get a mighty move of the Holy Spirit and whoo, thank you, Jesus, and let me go back to work. No. Perpetual. You come to be reminded. You come to be exhorted. You come to be just refreshed so that when you go back out, that's where the gift of the Holy Spirit is going to be used. Will happen here, can happen here, does happen here, should happen here, but not for that purpose. Okay. Now, again, I'm just tying this all together. What, what were two other distinct characteristics of, of chapter 2? When they're all together in one place, it says, on the day of Pentecost, it says two elements appeared as best as they could understood it, uh, understand it. Wind and fire, tongues of fire. Now, let me show you another picture. Go, let's go back to Mount Sinai in the book of Exodus of the Old Testament. This is a depiction of Mount Sinai as it potentially would have been thousands of years ago. Here's the Israelite nation. They've been delivered. You, delivered. you see them in droves and masses, and you kind of can't see it from here, but they're proclaiming, and they're praising, and they're in awe because up here you see on the mountain lightning and smoke and this great magnitude of a manifestation of the presence of God right there. The defining characteristics of this picture, even though it's not colored, fire, lightning. If you study lightning, it's very hot. It's much hotter than fire. Lightning and smoke. And there's a wind that's blowing throughout this time. New Testament. You've got 120 people. Their Savior just died, but he miraculously rose from the grave, and he's teaching them, and he gets, go and wait in Jerusalem. So they go and they wait, and they do the only thing that they know that they could do. They pray. They take care of old business. And they're saying, Lord, we're waiting for you. We're waiting for a sign of you. What do they know? They know their history. They know that their ancestors experienced the presence of God on Mount Sinai through a credible, incredible display of elements. How does God show up? A mighty blowing of a rushing wind and tongues of fire fall. This is an indication, God, you're here. God, you're here right now. This, this, this is no coincidence. This is, I didn't eat bad chicken last night. Like, like you are here right now. So, God, I'm just, I'm waiting for you to do whatever it is that you told me to wait for you to do right now. And it says that those tongues of fire, the word for tongues there, literally, there is no word in, in Greek or in Aramaic for tongues. Tongues, like, like the biological, or, or excuse me, there is no word for language. There's only one word, it's tongue. And tongue could have meant biologically, but most likely it was referring to language. And what tongue do you speak? Language. So the tongues of fire come, and it fills them, and what is the outcome? 
they start to a bunch of Galileans. These are you, you saw what all those around heard and said, aren't these Galileans? How? In other words, you got to understand the implications of that. Galileans were undereducated individuals that didn't have a lot of learning and, and, and they weren't, you know, culturally diversified and, and all this. They, you know, they were just they were regular people, really regular people. And yet, Parthia and Medes, Elamites, residents of Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, the surrounding areas. You, you know what those lists in verses 9 through 11 are showing us? Because of Pentecost, every single Jew scattered throughout the known world, the Roman Empire as they knew it, every crack, every cranny, everywhere, they would come back together for these cultural feasts. Pentecost. Now they're back together. A few commentators said that anywhere from 144 to 220,000 people were crammed into Jerusalem just for this event. So I'm kind of jumping ahead, but you know how the end of this is we're going to see 3,000 came to, to Christ that day? Peter, in a few moments, as we're going to see, is probably preaching to a whole lot more than 3,000. It's just 3,000 people that responded. So take note of the fact that there are Hundreds of thousands of people that are present that are Jewish, but they are Jewish by heritage and Jewish by religious practice. But there are a whole bunch of other ethnic makeups there. All of these individuals come from different territories, different cultures, different geographical locations. While they maintain their their Jewish heritage, they've been there for generations now. They've taken upon themselves the culture. So you got Filipinos, you got African-Americans, you got African, you got Hispanic, whether you're Puerto Rican, Dominican, Cuban, Mexican, you got, not literally here, I'm just making the point. You got all of that, but they're Jewish by heritage. Like, no, I know my roots. I know my religious practice. So on this annual festival, we're going to go back, all come together. And that is the point of this right here saying, it's the entire known world that makes up the Jewish population, and it's very diverse. And they're all together, crammed into Jerusalem, celebrating the Feast of Pentecost, the Feast of First Fruits. And there's 120, but they're all Galileans. It's not like one from each of our nation came together for, for some sort of you know unification party. It's a bunch of Galileans. That's my language. No, that, that's my language. That, that's my language. What is going on here in this place right now? God's timing is perfect. What would have happened if before the Feast of Pentecost, he allowed the Spirit to come? Would have been great. Probably just for 120 people, add a few what he was doing when he said wait because i've got a big crowd that i want you to reach so so here, here's my first point to you and let's let's kind of talk about this the gift of the spirit provided the means to overcome barriers what's going on in our culture right now what's been going on in, in society throughout all of human history barriers trying to be broken down whether they're racial, whether they're economical, whether they're religious, whether they're gender specific. How, 
break down barriers, and we've come up with so many grandiose ideas. We write books about it. We have talks about it. We have rallies about it. We have revolutions about it, and everybody thinks their way is the best, and it never lasts. You go throughout human history, and no matter what it was that actually led to some reform, it doesn't last. about it being something that instantly happened that's still happening today for those that are faithful that has never ceased to bear fruit let me give you a little bit more history as we talk about this think about it. the spirit was given to break down barriers let me remind you of the tower of babel do you all remember that story that's really going back that's even before exodus so here we just got a picture right up here for you this is potentially as we can imagine the tower of babel and in that story in scripture we read about how all of the earth was of one language. There, there was no other language at that time. This is very early on after the creation. There's, there's one people group, probably all the same ethnicity, potentially, depending on where they live, but they were close together. They spoke the same language, and that was great. And one day they come together, and they say, you know what? We're pretty good. We're pretty strong. We're, we're, we're pretty well off. You know what we should do? We should build a tower that reaches into the heavens so that we can pretty much declare our equality with God himself, with the gods, with the heavens. That's how good we are. Let's build to the heavens and let's sit right next to God as his equal. It's kind of funny when you see God's response. He's looking down. He goes, hmm, they're full of it, but they're good. <laughs> I mean, look at what they accomplished when they're unified, when they're of one accord. And he says specifically, there's nothing they can't do. This is a good thing. God is, in one sense, looking and saying, man, I did a good job. I created a good creation in spite of their sin. Look at what they can accomplish. Problem is, their motivation, filled with pride, created us. All right, you wanted to step there? Boom, confusion. It says specifically he confused them by dividing their languages, dividing their tongues. So that now they're trying to, in that moment, work and build and lay mortar and brick. And I don't understand you. That's literally how the Bible depicts this historical account. What just happened at Pentecost, thousands of years later? God says, wait. He waits for all of the known cultures and languages that the world has experienced and developed so far. Whole known world to come together in one place. start speaking and what they speak represents all of the known languages so that everybody around says what is going on here how is it that now language has become completely unified in this moment we have never been able to cross such barriers throughout all of time and in a moment 120 random strangers that we don't know are speaking our language we have so many different things in society that are trying to build itself up as the answer. Man, we got problems with reform. We've got problems with race. We've got problems with education. We've got problems with economics. We've got problems with politics. Here's the answer. Vote for. March for. Go to. Unity is always the goal you know the phrase it's a means to an end 
let's be honest. For the world, unity is the goal. We, we see it everywhere. Unity, 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 unity. I'm for unity. But let me tell you where the problem is. It's when unity is the end. When unity is the goal. When we pick it up, remove it from where it belongs and say, that's the goal. We need to be unified. It's not an end. Let me tell you this. Unity isn't an end. It's a characteristic of those who are en route to the end. What does Paul say? I press on toward the goal for which Christ has called me heavenward. Living for Jesus. Jesus is our end. Jesus is our goal. Representing him, being his witnesses is our purpose. It's our end where we strive for. Unity is going to naturally come when we're living for Jesus. But when we say we need unity, what's the answer? We've missed it. No, we need Jesus. And as we strive towards Jesus, unity becomes a natural byproduct of our route towards the end. But this is what we miss all the time in the world and sometimes even in the church. Because we, we just like to pick up one particular fruit, a good fruit, a characteristic. We look at the fruits of the spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such thing, there is no law. And we just take one and we say, that's got to be our goal. Never going to reach it. You're never going to reach it. All of that is going to be a fruit, the characteristic of individuals that say, Jesus your way is my way. I will be obedient to you. I will wait. You lead. I'll follow. Spirit comes. Spirit fills. Unity happens. They didn't go out and rally. They didn't go out and march. They didn't go out and vote. They didn't go out and protest. They didn't go out and revolt. Whatever it is, you name it. They didn't do it. They waited. Oh, it's Pentecost. Let's go celebrate. A lot of people here, man. Wind. Everybody sees it. They unified an entire nation in that moment. Again, just as a side note, but remember, this goes to show how perfect God's timing is. Just remember that. If you're like, I can't wait anymore, trust him. Just trust him and wait on him. Verse 12, quick point, verses 12 and 13. Amazed and perplexed. All those that were around from all these surrounding nations, they look and they start asking each other, what does this mean? Like, this makes no sense. Some, however, made fun of them and said, they've had too much wine. Can we just be real for a second? That's the stupidest thing ever. Like, oh, because they're drunk, they're ultimately going to become massively literate in a plethora of languages and they speak them. That's the stupidest thing ever. I'm just saying, man. And all I'm going to say is think about the application. We got a lot of problems and we go to booze for the answer. I don't know about that. Let me give you this point. We can have two responses to the supernatural move of God. Sincerity or suspicion. I'm telling you, it's as clear and as plain as that. It, it, like we can try and define it a bunch of different ways. There, there's just... I've seen it a million times. I've experienced it myself. I've responded in both ways a million times. Again, if you've, if you've done either or, if one doesn't make you, oh, I'm going to hell or I'm going to heaven, that's not what it's about. It's just about responding to God. And when he moves, Satan is immediately going to try and dismantle the powerful move of God. And we see it right here. 
God does something that is profound that the world has never seen. And what does Satan do? He plants a seed of doubt, of cynicism, of they got to be drunk. They don't even stop to think how stupid of a response that is. No, there's no explanation for what just took place. We are in the presence of something mighty, of something that we can feel, that we can hear. And it's embodied in 120 people that we don't even know, but we know they're Galileans and they're Jews. They shouldn't be able to do that, and yet they are. Sincerity or suspicion. And I just leave that with you. As the Lord will continually move in your life, as he has and as he will, how are you going to respond? I promise you that's going to be the first thing. I promise you, without doubt. Sincerity or suspicion. Okay, now let me read for you. It's a lot. I want to read for you Acts chapter 2, verses 14 through 36. This is, in a sense, Peter's, believe it or not, probably his paraphrase of his sermon. Luke wrote a condensed version of it, but it's the, it's the big key points. And I'm going to read for you these verses, and I'm going to tell you, I can't break it all down. There's so much theology here that I would love but honestly, I'd need a whole nother week to come back to it. So I'm going to hit just some main things. But tune your ears in. And I just want you to do this. Imagine you're in Jerusalem. Imagine right now you are in a crowd of thousands of people. And you've just heard these Galileans do something that you've never seen before. That obviously needs some sort of explanation. And now everybody quiets down. And one of the 120 stands up. Peter filled with the Spirit, speaks those words. And this is what he says. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, and he raised his voice, and he addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews, and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No. This is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him as you yourselves know. Here we go. He proved that he was who he said he was. This man was handed over to you by God, his deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to a cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. King David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me, because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad <laughs> and my tongue 
rejoicing. My body also will rest in hope. Because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. You will not let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. Peter, fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried and was and is in his tomb here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all what witnesses of it. Exalted to the right hand of God, he received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit, and has poured out what you now see and hear, the promised Holy Spirit. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet said, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified. Both Lord and Messiah. Let me remind you, really important, Jesus' audience, Peter's audience was Jewish Christians. Peter proclaimed just a few moments ago to Jews that the gift of God that was prophesied by Joel was going to be poured out on all generations, on all people. He even mentions men and women who are slaves, the lowliest of the low. That's saying God is not a discriminator of people. He will give his gift liberally to all who choose to call on him. But he's speaking to Jews. There might have been some Gentiles in the audience, but the point of what Luke is trying to communicate to us, these are Jews. We're going to see in the weeks to come how the gospel did reach the Gentile world, but we can't move there yet. We, we can't move on. We've got to really think, especially if we're not Jewish, what does this mean for us as believers, as Christians, if you are here today and you would say, yeah, I am a believer in Jesus. How does this apply to us? Well, look at what Peter's real intent of his message was was repentance he cries out to a bunch of jews and he said it forgive me two maybe three times this jesus whom you crucified in fact there was likely many people that were there that just roughly 50 days prior were the very ones who were shouting crucify him crucify him now there's hundreds of thousands of jews who probably have heard the message of jesus whether they were there and a part of the the crowds and the insurrection against jesus or not and jesus in their minds before their eyes and their hearts is presented by peter and he convicts them through the power of the holy spirit i want you to really stop and think about how difficult that would have been for peter 
He himself is a Jew. Not only that, he was one of the inner circle, the original followers of Jesus who had just been crucified because of what he proclaimed. And now Peter is walking in his footsteps. He's in Jerusalem during a Jewish festival. Pharisees, leaders, they were probably all there. And Peter fully was aware that if I get up and I proclaim Jesus and what he stood for, and not just what he stood for, but make it clear the fact that you snuffed him out. Everybody within reach of my voice, Peter is saying, you crucified him because you rejected him. I don't think Peter would have had the strength. I really, I don't. Peter, who was brash, who had, in a similar situation as Jesus was being carried away to be crucified, was asked, hey, Aren't you that Galilean that follows Jesus? No, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know that. To a little girl, now in front of hundreds of thousands of Jews, stands up emboldened and empowered by the Holy Spirit, not only to proclaim Jesus' divinity and his resurrection, but looks to the crowd and says, what does this mean for you? You murderers. really easy for us to stop and say Lord it's easier for us to say stop and, and, and say Lord God I, I repent of that lie that I told God I repent of my addiction to drugs porn or laziness God, I, I repent of the abuse that I have perpetrated against others in my life. Those aren't small things. But listen to me. We focus on repenting about those things. That's not the repentance that Peter proclaimed for the Jews to repent for. It was, you thought you were right. You were wrong. crucified the very one who was hoped at Jerusalem. I'll give you this point. God's spirit was given with the intention that we would stop. God did not tell his disciples and, and all the 120 who were meeting together regularly for prayer, coming together, waiting on God and his promised Holy Spirit, he didn't tell them to wait, and then I'm going to give it to you, and you're going to enjoy it behind closed doors. We call it the upper room experience. More than likely, they were not in an upper room. Likely, they were out in the temple courts, not in the main temple, but down to a small portion of the temple, kind of by the stairs that nobody cares about. And they were just celebrating, worshiping Jesus, and it's there, out in public. That God fills them with the spirit. And they say stop. Verse 37. When the people heard this. They were cut to the heart. And said to Peter and the other apostles. Brothers. What shall we do? They were cut to the heart. Why? Let me just pause right there. Let me come back to that. Peter emboldened by the spirit addressed the crowd. 
Now, do you, what, what you don't understand that I want to tell you right now is back in the first few verses, the first 11 verses, when it says that the Spirit gave them utterance, the Spirit enabled them to speak, the same exact unique word that's used there is the same exact word that was used earlier in, excuse me, Verse 14, when it says, Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed. The word addressed is the same Greek word that has to do with the spirit enables him. And it's a very unique word. It's not a common word that just talks about, oh, they were conversing, they were talking. It's a spirit-filled word. It is an empowered, supernatural word. So, in other words, it wasn't just tongues. We like to focus on that. It was tongues for the purpose of proclamation of the gospel. Because Peter didn't stand up and just start uttering the known languages in tongues. He used it, God used it, as a sign to get the attention of the people so that now their ears were attentive. And with attentive ears, Peter, now filled with the Holy Spirit, spells out the gospel and boldly, fearfully calls for repentance, which led to the people being cut. What are we to do, brothers? Peter replied, repent and be baptized. Every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you too will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off. For all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he warned them. This is, that's the proof, by the way. This wasn't Peter's first sermon. That right there tells you, he went on. He probably had a three-hour sermon. Aren't you glad I'm not going to preach for three hours today? With many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized. And about 3,000 were added to their number that give you this first point they knew those that were present they knew jesus but they rejected what he stood for peter says to those that actually admit their sin and say what should we do repent be baptized in the name of the lord you will receive the gift of the holy spirit save yourself from this corrupt generation now, I'm sure it was not simply referring to, but it was at least referring to Pharisees, false teachers, those in the Jewish faith that were, that were anti-Jesus, that were anti-the gospel, that followed Jesus all around, angry, indignant, jealous, and ultimately plotted his inevitable death. Peter's saying, save yourselves from that. Again, that applies to more than just that. But we got to remember, I don't want us to move past the fact he's speaking to Jews. Let's not go on to Gentile and the whole world and all the other problems we face. Let's just focus on the heart of the issue right now for us as believers. They knew Jesus, but they rejected what he stood for, and then they crucified him. They didn't like what they heard. There's really only one category that this particularly falls into that we see throughout all of the Bible, especially in the New Testament and the book of Hebrews. It's the idea of apostasy. Of falling away. Let me read for you what the author of Hebrews says in chapter 6, verse 4. He says this. It's impossible. Strong language. It's impossible. There's no turning back. 
it's impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift. What do you think the heavenly gift is referring to? Who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age, and yet who have fallen away to be brought back to repentance. To their loss, they are crucifying What did Peter say to the crowd? You crucified him. Author of Hebrews, years after the events of Acts chapter 2 transpire, applicable for us after the giving of the Holy Spirit, if we fall away, impossible for us to come back. We are crucifying him. Jesus is already crucified. No, no, no. Your continual decision to reject him and to go back, full knowledge of what he's done for you, Full knowledge of his saving grace. Full knowledge of his blessing, his mercy, his grace. Full knowledge of all of that. You've experienced it. You are not ignorant of it. To their loss, they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting him to public disgrace. Just a brief little metaphor illustration. Land that drinks with the rain often falling on it and that produces a crop useful to those for whom it is farmed, receives the blessing of God. But land that produces thorns and thistles is worthless. It is in danger of being cursed. In the end, it will be burned. Here's the second point that I want to give you out in this chunk of of Scripture. Have you allowed your faith to become corrupt? If you're here today and you're not a believer, please understand this is not a passing of judgment, of condemnation upon you. It's not why I read this, and I don't want you to be filled with dread and fear. Not at all. The Bible says there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. God is very respectful of where you're at in your walk, whether you're close or far from him. But now i got to get serious for my church. For those that claim to be followers of Jesus, Hebrews makes it very clear. You've experienced his power, his mighty work, your presence, that you've received blessings from him. It's impossible. Why? Why? Because God doesn't allow it? No, it's impossible because you refuse it. You refuse it. I will never pass judgment, and I don't think it is any Christian's right to ever pass judgment to say apostate, going to hell. You've got no right to do that. That's between you and every one of us and God. But it is my job and our job for those of us who know and ascribe to live by the word of God with all of our hearts and souls to understand how clear his word is on this. You need to be knowledgeable of the fact that if you have experienced Jesus and all of the blessing and you've called on him and you said, Lord, I follow you, but you keep going back to a sin like a dog returns to its vomit. You are driving the nails yourself into Christ. You are picking up the cat of nine tails and you are whipping him again and again. You are jeering him and mocking him in the face. And then maybe you, I'm going to be really real, you run back to church on Sunday and say, God, you know, I'm sorry, but your heart doesn't really mean it because you're like, oh, I, I, I'm done, I'm good, I, I, I said my prayer, now I'm going right back. Because all I got to do is pray it away. That's not repentance. 
I am not here telling anybody you're going to hell. Not my right, not my place. But the Bible says right here, it's a possibility. Have you tasted the goodness of the word of God? So Christian, has your faith become corrupt? The Jews heard Jesus. They heard the message. And you know the reality is there were hundreds of thousands of people there that day. 3,000 is a big number, but it's peas compared to who were there. Many of them are in heaven right now. I just don't. I'm not going to pass judgment, but the Bible is also clear that the Lord wishes that none would be lost, but that all would be saved. But that implies some are going to be lost. And it all comes down to your choice. It's your decision. God is waiting with open arms. He's waiting for you to say, Lord, I need your help. I need your help. I've become corrupt. Maybe some of you have grown up in the church. You've gone to Sunday school. You've heard the lessons. You've had the experiences. You've had incredible breakthrough. You do, at one point, remember the fact that you love God. But now you've just become so corrupt in your heart. And you're just here because that's what I've done. That's what I do. Here's the adverse response. Here's the positive response that we see happen by the 3,000 that were added to their number that day. In verse 42, it says this. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together and with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. This is, this is it. This is going to be the final aspect of our, our message. And I just want to give the Lord time to move. Because the Lord said, wait. Give me time to look at what happened when they were. Thousands of people came to know their Lord and Savior. And we see this incredible, unified, loving, giving, sacrificial, happy, joy-filled community take place. And it just didn't stay with the 120. It increased to thousands. That, that's the early picture of the first church that we see all because they waited and God gave the spirit and they used it to be a witness. It's as simple as that. Wait, be filled, proclaim. Wait, be filled, be used. Don't hide it, use it. Why do you want it? Is it to be a witness? And now this, this is where I'm going to bring it back. This section that we just saw, this incredible section that churches throughout centuries have looked to as that's the church that we should be that's the church that we want to be yeah but churches throughout centuries have like i talked about before taken one of those and saying all right we got to work on eating together they broke bread regularly we've got to work on getting favor with all people in the community and they place that as the goal just like unity this wasn't a goal this was the end result. It was a fruit of a response of obedience. So listen to me. 
What you just read and what I hope you will always from this day forward read in Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 46 is this. These are not goals. They're gifts. They're gifts that the Lord has waiting for us who will simply press on toward the goal to win the prize for which Christ has called us heavenward. God has called us heavenward in Christ Jesus. church didn't have to try and force what the spirit was ready to do it didn't so one more question that i want to ask you and i mean it sincerely i I just want you to think about this do you care about the church do you care about this church do you care about glad tidings do you care about the people that comprise this that they hear this church do you care about the community that we're called to reach care about every car and every person that comes up along Asbury Ave every day who has for decades do you care about people in Asbury people in Mexican people in Deer people in West Long Branch people throughout Monmouth County people throughout Ocean County do you want to see those people added to our numbers maybe daily you want to see that well then I'm here to tell you Don't try and focus on one particular aspect of a gift that God has given to those who are obedient. Wait. That's what we do. We wait and pray. Acts 1 preaches it. We wait and pray. We ask to be filled. And then work beautifully. We proclaim Do you care about the church? Or has a corrupted faith twisted your view of this church? Only God can fix what we've broken. We need to reach more people. Therefore, we ought to. Only God can fix what's broken. And if, if, we, if we really want to be a church that's known for love, then we need to. Only God can fix what we've broken. Fellowship. Amazing worship. Stellar building. Amazing outreach. Breaking of bread. We're just focusing all on prayer. That's what that is right there. Can't. Can't do it. I don't know how he fixes it. Gift of the Holy Spirit. Can't fix it. So here's here's what I just want to do at this time. It says that they were all gathered together in place. In one place. One place. We're going to chapter 2. We're all gathered here together today. And I really believe that God just wants to minister to us right now in this place. So I want this atmosphere to be dedicated for us to have an opportunity to allow God's spirit to fill us. It says the spirit came with fire and a mighty rushing of the wind. I don't know that God wants to appear in that way to us today. Maybe he does. Maybe he doesn't. Maybe he wants to come in a whisper to you today. 
Maybe he wants to make your heart heavy. Maybe your heart is heavy. And that's how you know God is moving by his spirit. What's, what's your response? Repent. Right? If you've repented, your next response is just waiting. God, fill me. So let's just take a moment here in this place right now. Let's just quiet our hearts. And I just want to ask you right where you're at, just bow your heads, close your eyes. And, and what I'm going to do right now is I'm going to give opportunity. Um, there's nothing magical about it, but sometimes when we just set ourselves apart and we come to the altar up here, there's nothing magical about this place. But if you want to come and you just want to pray and kneel at the altar, you want to stand over there, you can do that. You want to kneel at your seats, you can do that. We can't just hear a message and say, okay, it's time to go. We've got to wait on the Holy Spirit. So let's just do that. Let's wait.